0: Everything in the winery looks amazing, but it's just a whole lot of um, stress basically involved in it every time you prepare to pick and then you get a little scud of rain. My husband spends a lot of time shouting at the sky and throwing his mobile phone and looking looking at every weather station, channel and app in the world to try and get a different picture.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Last summer, the bushfires had an enormous impact on tourism, restaurants, producers and vineyards right across Australia. The pandemic only delivered further pain for many in the regions. But will the coming years become a golden era for those working the land, producing wine and delivering regional culinary experiences for Australians keen to get out and about? Lisa Morgan is the co-owner of Margan in Broke in the Hunter Valley, New South Wales. Lisa, how are you going?
0: I am well and I love that introduction it sounds very positive. I I hope it all plays out exactly that way. The uh, the golden era. Bring it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's have a look at last summer with with the bushfires compared to the one that uh, we're experiencing at the moment. What's it even though there has been a pandemic, has it been a better summer than the previous? <laughs>
0: Sure. So this time last year, we were just at the tail end of, well, I think it had just rained and of course it never just rains, it floods, but we had just finished. um, I mean, it's still, of course, in everyone's memory, the fires that devastated um, the East Coast, Um, lots of wine regions. Uh, Sydney was inundated with continual smoke and fires, Canberra um, and all of those coastal regions. So yeah, the hunter, we had it, it started in uh, the first week in November and basically we had fires right around us, right up to a kilometre to our property um, and that that didn't... That did not stop until February when it finally rained. um, But it it wasn't even the fires that that was the most perilous thing for us. The silent killer for the Hunter Valley was um, smoke impact. So we didn't know what we didn't know, but um, the Australian wine industry has a much better appreciation and I would say fear of smoke tank going forward because it was – Turned out to be pretty devastating. We would have lost about 70% of our 500 tons to smoke taint. So that's, I don't want to even put a cost to that. I know what it is, but I I just have to move on from that because that is gone. Yeah, so that was devastating.
1: With the impact of COVID and the inability to travel overseas, a lot of people have been jumping in the car when they can and travelling to the regions. What's it been like for the hunter in the last couple of months?
0: Yeah, fantastic, I have to say. Since the regional travel ban lifted, uh, that was the the beginning of June. We opened for the June long weekend. Um, and the hunter, just goodness me, on everyone's radar, of course proximity to Sydney being two hours away, everyone was just keen to bust out of the um, cities and get to a rural region, get to do anything. Um, And, of of course, everyone who had planned on being overseas or travelling to different parts of Australia, well, they came to the Hunter, um, uh, which has been a um, a surprising benefit. We just, look, no no one could script last year. It's surprise after surprise. But um, so it seems if you take away all the other travel options from everyone, then they have to come to the Hunter. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs>
0: so we had we had people who have never been to the Hunter and c- couldn't explain why they've never been to the Hunter ex- except that they normally go overseas or perhaps to Margaret River or Mornington or other places. Um, but they said, God, this is right on our doorstep and I don't know why we've never been, but the wines are amazing, fabulous restaurants, um, gorgeous green scenery the hunter is um, we've had quite a lot of rain so very photogenic Uh, so yeah we've got had a lot of people surprisingly either reconnect or just connect with with the hunter and that's had a really nice flow on effect for uh sydney-based uh restaurants and licensed premises because now People are asking for Hunter wines um, because it's front of mind, and that's um, you know fed onto this nice little bit of parochial support from our you know Sydney-based local um, wine market. So that's had a lovely flow-on effect. So from what was a, a, a bad year in terms of farming and production, it's it's ended up being um, you know quite a nice finish to the end of last year, and that's rolled round into. 2021 so it's been nice
1: you're um known and renowned as a champion of the hunter and one of its um greatest uh chefs and uh and wine producers as well but you didn't grow up in the hunter you grew up in sydney take us back to that time and how do you how did you end up in the hunter
0: I ended up in a hunter when I um, married a winemaker. You're going to (laughs) find yourself in a wine region whether you like it or not. I didn't put a lot of thought into that. Um, Love works like that or doesn't work like that. But, um, yeah, I met my uh, husband-to-be at the bar. We both went to Hawkesbury Agricultural College where we both – did our degrees there. Um, so, yeah, met him at the bar there. I don't think either of us were drinking premium wine. In fact, I'm quite <laughs> quite sure in the late 80s we were not. Um, so, uh, yeah, so met him. I was um, just uh, training training to be a teacher, high school teacher at the time and he had done an ag degree, agricultural degree, and then was following up with um, a degree in environmental health. But um, he had a long connection with the... Uh, tyrrell 's family, his own parents had vineyards in the hunter in the um, late sixties and seventies, so as a child, he got to know the hunter valley through through that, basically being dragged up <laughs> up there every weekend um, and that <laughs> property was right next door to the tyrrell so he subsequently um, basically took a, a, an apprenticeship a hands on with the late great Murray Tyrrell, who was obviously a great Grape grower, but also farmer, um, in particular cattle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So he learned a lot about the land from Murray Tyrrell and uh, connected with that. So then, yeah, we married and moved to the Hunter, bought a property, and um, I came to the Hunter, I had always wanted to be a chef, but my parents wanted me to get a uni degree, so um, hence the teaching, (laughs) but that was, uh, I taught hospitality and also science, taught that as well when I came to the Hunter, but thought, okay, I'm in a wine region now and with wine goes food, so I'm going to go and um, start a chef apprenticeship. So I I did, yeah, I did that with... um, Robert Molinaise who at the time had his restaurant the cellar restaurant he now is still on the pans unbelievably at almost 70 um, with at bistro Molines, which is a beautiful restaurant in the hunter so retrained with him did that for a couple of years and then we both moved to France we moved to Bordeaux uh, and you made wine and I um, progressed with my uh, cooking career there so we did that for a few years mm.
1: We don't have the chance to go over to Bordeaux at the moment. No, you... sad. <laughs> paint, paint a picture of that time for us, and and you said you were cooking, and he was um, learning to make wine over there. Um, what, what was it like over there? What sort of things were you cooking? What sort of access did you have to produce?
0: So, what, what, f- first and foremost, for um, you know, a little Aussie girl, the the produce was just amazing so obviously um, you know Europeans really value their produce they value the provenance of their produce so you go to the markets and here's the leeks that are from this farmer and we wait until the white asparagus comes out um, and celebrate that seasonal moment and these strawberries are from here so that just puts it a lot of focus and emphasis on on the produce, which wasn't really the case in Australia back then, it certainly is now. We've come a long way in three decades, but this is um, early '90s. It wasn't so much the case in Australia, so that was a real eye opener for me. Respect for produce, respect for provenance of the produce, and for the season. So wait till that produce comes in, see into season. Get excited about it. Look forward to it be sad when it's over but you'll welcome the next thing so don't as a consumer just demand that you know year-round access to that produce just because you like it so that was probably a big thing that I learned um of course I I mean I worked in a restaurant there which was a one Michelin so um very disciplined um kitchen fortunately I'd worked with um Robert Molina so I already had the the yelling French (laughs) Male chef things sorted and mostly blokes in a kitchen. I already had that that bit down pat, so that wasn't a, a big transition there. But um, very disciplined kitchen brigades, um, which were probably pretty in- intimidating. Um, all instructions in fast and furious French, and that wasn't going to be repeated just because you – didn't have a solid grasp of the language, so um, yeah, there there were there were quiet tears at the end of service every now and again. So that was um, that was challenging. Uh, and Andrew uh, worked in a winery there, so we both learnt. Lots um, and Bordeaux is a um, obviously a very um, blue chip wine region, so you know there, there, there's money everywhere in Bordeaux um, in terms of the investment into vineyards. It's a very historic wine region, um, but it actually showed us how to do a wine region. So, um, wine regions weren't as sophisticated back then, so we got a real you know a, a solid idea of what um, a wine region could look like, and we basically formulated our plans over there of when we got back to the hunter, wouldn't it be great to do um, to do our own wine brand and put a restaurant with that, so food and wine and uh, and the garden and the whole thing. So that's yeah, all the the genesis of those business plans happened there.
1: Before you ventured out and and created, that um, based on that blueprint, you ended up back at university doing a master's degree in science and nutrition, and um, working um, in the hospitals um, cook, cooking food as a nutritionist. What, what tell us about that period of time and and how different that was to French kitchens?
0: Yeah, so um, so I was back, I came came back so I've. At, we're adding three children in amongst this. If I say it fast, it, <laughs> if I say it fast, it doesn't hurt. But <laughs> there was a lot of behind the scenes, so I thought, whilst I'm doing a, doing children, I will go back to uni and do my masters. Why? I thought that was a good idea. Um, I, I, I can't remember, but um, clearly I had a lot more energy then than I do now. But I yeah, went back to uni and um, did my masters um, in. Um, nutrition worked in a hospital not in the kitchen I ran an outpatient's clinic so it was more as a clinician um, so uh, and, I, and I did that whilst we had young children and then Andrew who had resumed working at Tyrell's um, he we, we decided yeah let's do our own wine brand so I went on maternity leave from the hospital and he, he left Tyrell's and we started our business so Wow. I I thought I would return maybe to um to nutrition and that pathway and I just yeah never never made it out and in the, in the meantime <laughs> we, we I created this this you know other career path for myself and, yeah, reconnected with um, cooking and the original dream of having a restaurant, having a cellar door, having a wine brand, doing this lovely on-site thing. So, um, so yeah, we, we started doing that and I, I never went back. Yep.
1: Was, tell us about some of the challenges early on creating this brand because Margan now is a, an amazing wine and the restaurant is one of the best uh, – Regional restaurants in Australia, but those early days as a small business and with the, with three kids as well, what were some of the challenges involved?
0: Oh, every, everything. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's just say a very broad job description. We've got a we've got a team of thirty right now, um, but basically I wow. have literally done. Every job in this business, and so is Andrew. So we. Uh, so this is the end of February that we're recording this. So we are um, in the last week of our grape harvest here, which we started picking um, at the beginning of January. So it's gone on a long time. Uh, normally it would be wrapped up a bit earlier than now, um, but we we haven't really had a summer. We've had a lot of rain, um, so it's it's dragged on quite a bit. So anyway. Wine, wine is at the core of what we do. So uh, in the early days, the, it, it involved like physically managing um, a vineyard. So uh, all the basic daily or seasonal jobs around that: pruning, tying up, picking, harvesting, weed management, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, I can ride, a tra- drive a tractor, I can slash, I can do all those things. Then there's winery work, which is sounds glamorous, making wine, but um, you know. If I took you to the – walked into our winery right now, you would go, wow, okay. So there's a lot of, you know, hosing of things down. There's a lot of – Hard physical work, uh, so I have done all that, and then of course, um, the restaurant side as well, which is um, hugely physical um, and uh, can can be very stressful, which is I guess why the retention rates for the hospitality industry um, fall off a little bit because it can be you know hard physical, demanding work. so that that was tough with a young family. Mm-hmm. Um, also, without flying the female card, but it's it's difficult to coordinate um, good quality childcare when you're working in the hospitality industry because it revolves around evenings and weekends, and your average daycare doesn't really accommodate for that. So, unless you've got good family mm. support locally, which neither of us did, um, that makes it very difficult to kind of yeah run run a family in in conjunction with that and then there's all the backer house stuff all the um and i don't even mean backer house kitchen that's another whole story but administratively all the compliance and legalities and the the never-ending paperwork that goes with um, uh, a business. And this one's very diverse because we run across five award industries. We, we're rural farmers, we're hospitality, we're cellar door, we're, uh, we have uh, domestic and wholes- domestic wholesale and export um, uh, wine, um, sending it out to all of those markets. So, um, you know, there's a lot of that, not to mention you know, things like HR and management of people and making sure everyone's fine and, um, yeah, all of that. So it's it's pretty
1: diverse. <laughs> kitchen gardens became a, a thing in restaurants and often they were almost just a small add-on to restaurants, but you were one of the first to have a real proper kitchen garden. Uh, what was it like managing that side of things um, and producing um, things for your own restaurant?
0: Yeah, so the, again, the original concept was for, you know, guests to come to this property and um, connect with their food, have a, have a garden, an established garden that would be the size that could provide enough volume to basically supply the restaurant. We only open Friday, Saturday and Sunday, so, um, you know, you're looking at – Two hundred fifty, three hundred covers, so that's, um, that's fine. And you've got time to kind of regroup in terms of garden produce and harvest fresh to go again next week. So um, pioneering it was, um, definitely. We learnt lots of lessons in the first year. We planted everything and then, of course, uh, it all becomes ripe at once. So you harvest it all and then <laughs> you've got so much stuff and nowhere to put it and nothing to do with it. And then the next week you've got nothing. So it's like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> so we, we pretty, pretty quickly learnt, um, um, hard lessons in terms of stagger planting. So now, for example, we've just finished our summer corn, but we can get Um, We've got a a glasshouse so we can get seedlings going in the glasshouse so we can get them into the ground the minute the winter frosts go. Then we just have this continuity of planting. So literally every week we're planting a new row so that once we start harvesting Kind of around Christmas, then we'll get continuity every single week running through until like literally about now. Same with um, all of our summer produce and with all of our seasonal produce. So we learnt that. We also learnt, um, yeah, the bit about frost sensitivity. So you know, if you put a lettuce in your freezer, you'll see <laughs> what a what a a snap overnight frost will do to your garden. So we we learned that, um, yeah, frost-sensitive things, you have to be careful around the timing. Uh, We've learned a lot about seeds, viability of seeds. Um, We try and collect our own seeds from successful planting. So, for example, if that um, crop of whatever was particularly tasty, gather the seeds from that because... Um, well it's it 's just Darwinianism you know survival of the fittest or the survival of the tastiest will save seeds from that um, and for example, we planted a different species of corn um, we bought some beautiful organic seeds because that garden is all uh, run organically and uh, they'll just they were hopeless so the the produce was was not great so it 's fine to say you grow it yourself but unless um, it's it's of beautiful quality. Then what's the point? Otherwise, you have to mm. sort of put it on the plate and apologise a little bit. So um, uh, <laughs> so we we ended up making delicious polenta with that. We dried that corn out, ran it all through the meat mincer, and made gorgeous polenta. So um, so that's what we did with that. But um, yeah, the the kitchen garden. You know, a lot of people are getting on board with that, which I think is fantastic. You know, the more we grow ourselves, the better. But it it does take a lot of management it's not it's not necessarily cheaper um we probably break even because um, it's labor intensive so it's a garden it's an orchard we have free-range chickens we have estate reared lambs we've got about 50 of those on the go beautiful suffolk lambs uh beehives olive groves but all these things are really labor intensive and labor's expensive um And we run it all organically. So, um, you know, it doesn't, it's not cheaper. It's much cheaper to go to a cheaper, nasty supermarket and buy mass produced whatever um, produce. That will be cheaper. But that's not what we connect with and it's not what we do. And this whole property, viticulturally as well, we are in conversion um, to organic status. Um, we're already our our whole business has been following an EMP environmental management plan for um, probably the last eight years. So we've been fully certified. Yeah, it's it's quite a commitment. So we've been fully certified with that for the last five years, and we've just finished our audit that happened just before Christmas. So that refreshes our. Um, uh, certification. So we're always, we do little happy dances when we pass our audit because um, yeah, they're not easy to pass. They're, they're very stringent and they should be because I hate it when people just make make shit up about what they do. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, 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 it rips off those who follow those sort of organic or biodynamic pathways or sustainably farmed whatever. It does undermine that process if people just make that up and that they don't really do the proper things. So...
1: With a history of learning French technique and using Australian ingredients and now growing your own produce and having that real connection with produce, how much does that dictate how you cook in the kitchen? And can you give us an idea of a dish or two of what sort of uh, uh, exemplifies your cookery?
0: Yeah, um, so... I mean, obviously, I, I'm a chef, but I don't take the head chef role anymore because um, I would never get anything else done. So I'll always <laughs> have yeah, um, a, a great head chef to lead my kitchen. Um, food style, look, it, it's my food style. It's the it's the house style of this business. And this, this restaurant's now 14 years old. Um, so there's, you know, sustainability just to still improve in business in hospitality for 14 years. Um, So the food style has evolved over time. I would define the food style um, as agri-dining. So agricultural dining, whatever we can grow, uh, we can showcase that. So we write menus around what we're harvesting. So uh, our head chef, um, Joey Ingram, uh, myself and Gino Al, wonderful sicilian italian gardener so you have to trust him on that don't you he's from sicily they know these things um so we will walk in the garden every week have a look at what we're harvesting have a look at lead times of things or how much produce we're still running with and then we will just shape our menu around that so we'll update our menu every week subbing things on subbing things off so uh for example figs we're at the business end of figs at the moment um, had a great crop over. We've got about eight to ten mature fig trees, so masses of figs. So it's fig paste, it's fresh figs, it's dried figs, it's um, in savory aspects in dessert, etc. Um, etc. Et but we'll, they'll finish probably, maybe we'll pick this week and next week, and then that's over. So then we'll put something else on. So we're then moving into. Autumn harvest. So, I was in the garden this morning. Uh, we've got lots of citrus that will be a little while away. We've got beautiful finger limes that will be ready in about a few weeks. Um, so, we'll probably toss those through a lovely blood orange curd and do a little deconstructed PAV or something like that. We've got beautiful persimmon um, on the trees. They're about four weeks away. Um, so, all of those lovely autumn fruits quinces are ready to pick so that will be in savory and sweet um, applications and then quince paste etc so that's how we roll so the food style needs to be dictated by that um, again running with that organic thing I don't like to play around with food too much and again you know that's my nutrition background coming into it I like to focus on the integrity of the food as it's produced and you know as I say to our kitchen team, prep for this dish started 3 months ago when we've putting seeds into the ground so that's when preparation starts so you don't have to play around with it too much once you get it you don't have to deconstruct something to and then do 20 things to it to make it taste like the thing that it was and then reform it to make it look like the thing it used to be just start with good prod produce make it tasty make it you know food that people want to eat make it beautiful on the plate Um, you know compose that dish to make it look lovely make it look like something you're not going to get at home but you know don't do too much with it I, I, I don't love sous vide cooking lots although I love um, the control around it I love the consistency and it's pragmatic and all of that sort of stuff but really cooking in plastic bags um, there's a big carbon footprint around that and also dioxin transfer out of plastic bags no one can give me a good answer on if if that's a bad thing or not so you know we try and minimize all of that um, in our kitchen as well um, we'd love to invest in um, Uh, cooking over coal that that will be a whole kitchen refit or something but um yeah something something like that but yeah that's that's the food style let it speak of its provenance and uh um focus on the quality of that and you know i hope people respect the food style that it's clean clean food it looks beautiful on the plate and it tastes tasty yeah
1: you mentioned uh, early on in your career that there was it was very male dominated kitchens, and you also spoke of some of the challenges in being a mother and trying to be a head chef as well at the same time. Um, you're a, a founding board member of Women Hospitality Organisation. Can you tell us a bit about that and the importance that it has for the industry?
0: Yeah. Proud to be on that. Um that's been um going for about three years now. We've had a little bit of a um, you know, break during COVID in not being able to run as many events as we would like. But we continued to run a, a pretty strong mentoring program, which was uh interesting because we connect with uh, seniors in the hospitality industry. And I'm I'm continually surprised to find I'm these days a senior, but I've got- <laughs> I've got I've got three kids and they've all seemed to have finished university so I, I guess I must be a senior um, and I think in the hospitality uh, industry it's almost like doggies you near a senior because um, yeah uh, so it, it's important as a, as a senior I guess to um, yeah give back to the industry to support those coming up through the industry um, obviously last year's a lot of challenges. Um, poor old hospitality industry I think has really been smashed and in tatters so even being able to run our mentor programs through that I mean I personally was mentoring uh, someone in uh, a restaurateur in Victoria God lover so we basically started that mentoring relationship and then lockdown happened pretty pretty soon after that so I'm supposed to be the, the mentor and the leading light but I kind of rang when I when we all got closed down and the phone call was a bit like oh my god my restaurant's closed down I don't know what to do oh my god my restaurant's closed down I don't know what to do so it was almost like blind leading the blind through these uncharted waters of what is a lockdown and you've got to stand your people down and what does that mean and yeah when when will we be employed again and how does that work so um so yeah that was uh that's all connected with women and hospitality so yeah I believe in 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 giving back and um you know it takes time and sometimes I think oh god I need to spend a few more hours on my day job um and I also I'm deputy chair of the Hunter Culinary Association which is um peak culinary body in the hunt and we do a lot of um supportive apprenticeships we run scholarships a lot of events around networking and support so um yeah sometimes there's a lot about other things and i <laughs> get get a bit behind in my day job i've got to sit up late and do my own homework so um yeah but i, I believe that's important and we do have a uh, yeah a responsibility for that um and hopefully that just contributes to making the hospitality industry stronger and um, and viable, yeah, and providing good career paths, you know, the awareness that you can have a job in hospitality. It's a job that you choose, not just something you do while you're waiting to come up with a proper job, um, and it's it's got a clearly defined and um, well-remunerated and well-respected career path. That's what I believe in.
1: You mentioned a little earlier that the grape harvest was a little later because of the rain. Um, what, what sort of impact will that have on the wines that you'll produce? Can you tell what might um, come to fruition with that?
0: Okay, so uh, lots of rain for any... Um, Anyone harvesting anything right at harvest time is not what anyone wants. If you grow wheat or whatever, have an orchard or whatever, you just don't want rain while you're trying to pick. Number one, because um, the produce is vulnerable. It's perfectly ripe at that point, so it's vulnerable. Thin, thins are, uh, the skins are thinner. So you, um, in in terms of grapes. Uh, or any fruit you 're more that fruit is more susceptible to mildew and, and mold disease issues and and then, from a logistics point of view you can 't get machines on you can 't get a tractor physically onto the property to um, carry um, bins to pick into so there 's that operational logistic Thing that can't happen with rain, but also it, it it puts disease pressure on. So, yeah. So we we got this east coast low, um, well the Hunter. But I think every, everyone's thinking, what happened to summer? It rained through Christmas and New Year. Um, and it's been on and off since then. So we've everything in the winery looks amazing, but it's just a whole lot of um, stress, basically involved in it. Every time you prepare to pick, and then you get a little scud of rain. My husband spends a lot of time shouting at the sky and throwing his <laughs> mobile phone and looking looking at every weather station, channel and app in the world to try and get a different picture. Um, so, yeah, in, we should pretty well be finished in a couple of days. And then everyone will just sleep, I think, for a little bit because, um, for example, last Friday we had rain forecast coming in so literally all the hunter winemakers are on you know speed dial with each other you're going to pick you know risk it i wouldn't mind another bome of ripeness that means sugar, sugar ripeness i know but this weather's coming in so all of a sudden we picked we picked 70 tons in 20 hours so my husband was on a tractor for 20 hours and uh two in the winery put through that almost single-handedly so uh, they didn't get to bed till 4.30 in the morning and so that was just a hell of a day but we got it all in and then it poured so that is farming who'd be a farmer is a saying
1: <laughs> at the top of the show we uh, talked about whether or not that's going to be a golden era for uh, operators in the in the regions what's your thought about that in your sense for the next year or two?
0: Well, fir- firstly, I, I would, I would love people to reconnect with um, rural regions. Um, it, it's great to do a road trip and just have a look at, you know, inland Australia a little bit. It's it's the heart and the soul of this country. Um, real people doing real things, and you get to just see all of that. So, um, <clears throat> tourism to to wine regions uh, i'll say new south wales wine regions but i'm sure it's true everywhere um, it's been it's been great and again whilst no one lets us off this island that we're on which is australia's a lovely island to be stuck on i have to say but, you know, whilst no-one can do the international travel and whilst interstate travel is still a little bit start-stop, um, it's just been great for people to reconnect with their their backyard. Um, having that lovely parochial support has meant a lot to um, to farmers um, right at a time where they've, you know, had, had not just a hard year but there was three years of hard drought before that that is now just a a distant memory because everything's so green at the moment Um, and it does sound like us farmers are fussy. You know, we want the rain. Oh, no, not too much now. I don't want it today. I'd like it after we pick (laughs) that. A little bit of moderation, somewhere between hard drought for three years and floods would be really nice. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's great for people to be, um, you know, supporting australia actually supporting australian farmers and you know we've seen what's played out with um you know trading or exporting to china um when when farming gets tangled up with um international diplomacy um Mm. and then in a heartbeat you know livelihoods are lost and um no one wants wine to china or it's difficult now or barley or beef or or lobster or whatever the thing is um you know it, it it's a great maybe it's a great opportunity to say this is a great country we can produce lots of things of high quality um that usually has global markets and demand everywhere let's let's support our own let's support our own you know food and wine and whatever other products that we can make let's get some industries going again you know we used to be a country off the back of the of the merino industry but now we you know send that we don't have that manufacturing segment anymore. So, you know, wouldn't it be nice if a lot of that manufacturing came back to Australia and we, we, um, you know, supported that here? That's my dream. That'd be nice.
1: Well, amazing. And amazing to talk to you, Lisa. An extraordinary um, chat today. We've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. Um, let's hope that a golden era is... Uh, is what's in place in the next couple of years and um, we'll catch up and talk again soon
0: delightful great to talk to you have a great day
1: this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep stay tuned as we share the stories of australia's hospo community suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic special thanks to executive producer rob Locke for making this all happen follow us on instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast, or email us at podcast at deepentheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.